time the kids can meet in the back for the children's sermon. As they are going to the back, I want to invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, Today we are going to look to verses 1 through 15, but we're actually going to be covering two chapters. (laughs) Those first 15 verses lay out for us the the, the entire story of of First Kings three and four, so we'll we'll cover that. But as we do, I want to I want to uh, speak to the kids for a minute. So, all right, kids, if I got your attention now, uh, I want you to listen for something today. Okay, we're going to be talking about wisdom. I want you to listen for what is wisdom, and where does it come from? Okay, so when you talk to your parents. At lunch today, I want you to talk about that. Talk about what is wisdom and how do we get it, all right? Now, um, let's pray. Would you bow with me as we prepare to turn to the Lord's Word? Father, I ask, as we come under your Word, that you would give us hungry, submissive, open hearts to hear the word that you have for us today, and I pray that your voice would be the loudest voice we hear, give us your spirit, grant us understanding, conform us to Christ, we pray in his name, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only He sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. 
Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered the burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. So when our family gathers around the table, we will often play the question game. Just a great way to enjoy the time together and to and to uh, stir conversation. So why don't we why don't we start out with a version of that? All right. I'll ask the question. Imagine uh, for a moment that you are going to be granted one wish. Anything that you could ask for, you name it, but you only get one. What are you going to ask for? Million dollars? Billion dollars? A life free of pain? How about a bicycle? Fame, or the high school version of fame, popularity. What's it going to be? What is your one wish? Got it? All right, now here's the good thing about the question game. The asker gets to ask a follow-up. Why? Why that one request? See, the why is the probing question. The why is the question that gets to the heart. It's asking what is the underlying desire behind that one request. That's what we need to consider today. God asked Solomon, what one thing can I give you? And he wasn't playing the question game. It was real life. And Solomon answered, well, I will propose to you today that it was actually the high point, the pinnacle of Solomon's reign. We'll talk through his answer, why he asked, or why he asked for what he asked for. But we also need to understand that it's always complicated with Solomon. His story is a complicated one, and that's what makes him so relatable. So before we get to Solomon's request, we need to look to the the opening verses of this passage, and and there we're going to see some early warning signs in Solomon's life. Chapter 2 ended with a pretty firm description saying that the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon, but the very next verse we see a chink in the armor. Chapter 3, verse 1 opens, stating that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Marriage alliance is the way the word is translated here, almost as if it was a wise move of diplomacy. 
But that same word is translated differently in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. There it's not described as a marriage alliance. It is called intermarriage. And God is warning the people of Israel when they go into the promised land not to intermarry with the peoples and the nations around them. It's not an issue of race or ethnicity. It's an issue of worship. Because in the very next verse, Deuteronomy 7, 4, God warns what will happen when they do intermarry. Nations around them will steal their children's hearts after their false gods, their idols. It's a fair assumption, don't you think, that the daughter of Pharaoh was not walking with the Lord. She was not a follower of Yahweh. So this description of of Solomon's marriage alliance is an illustration of that intermarriage. Solomon is unequally yoked spiritually. And so why would the king of Israel do such a thing? Maybe it was an example of physical attraction that caused him to ignore the word of God. Certainly a pattern that we see him following over the course of the rest of his life. Maybe that's it, but maybe in addition there was something else. Maybe this was a power play. Maybe he's forming, as the text tells us, an alliance with Egypt. Rather than wise diplomacy as an example of the king of Israel placing his trust in the ways of the world, rather than Yahweh. That's the first early warning sign we see in this chapter of Solomon's life, but verses 2 and 3 offer a second. Solomon worshiped at the high places. You need to understand what's going on there. It's a bit confusing, I'll admit. The text tells us in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. The text goes on to tell us that Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings at Gibeon. This this sounds like an extravagant worship. So what's the issue? The issue is the location. It's the high places. And the high places are a big deal in the book of Kings. Why? Well, the high places were the places where the nations around them would worship their idols, their false gods, offering sacrifices to those false gods, at times even sacrificing their own children. Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Lord commanded Israel to destroy those places and to worship in the place of His choosing. Now, parenthetically, Notice how often we're looking back to Deuteronomy and how often we will continue to look back to Deuteronomy because in Deuteronomy, Moses has gathered the people of Israel as they're prepared to cross the Jordan River and take the promised land. And he's reminding them that they are a people bound by covenant. He reminds them of their history and gives them the commandments of what they are to do when they enter in to the promised land, but they're not Moses' commandments. They're the Lord God's commands. You see here in the opening 
verses of 1 Kings 3 that Solomon is running roughshod over those commandments. Now we'll apply all of this to us in a moment and what the high places have to do with us, but we need to understand place for them. Though they were worshiping, they were worshiping in the place where sacrifices had been offered to idols. They were blending their worship with the worship of idols, and God prohibited it because he knew that that worship in that place would ultimately draw their hearts away from him. Yes, Solomon worshipped. And yes, Solomon worshipped extravagantly, but the text is pointing out a problem. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father only. Don't miss the only. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Second chink in the armor. Okay, so what are we to do now with these early warning signs? And Solomon, I'll share with you my personal temptation when it comes to these early warning signs. My personal temptation when I read these problems with Solomon is to place myself in the jury box and offer an opinion of judgment over him. To view this text as an opportunity for me to decide whether or not Solomon is really with the Lord. We begin to ask ourselves, where is Solomon now? Is Solomon in heaven? Or is Solomon in hell? But praise the Lord, I don't know. And praise the Lord, I'm freed from that responsibility of declaring judgment over Solomon or anyone else for that matter. And when I grasp that truth, it changes the way I read this text. Rather than reading this text in order to make a judgment on Solomon, I now am free to read this text to see what Jesus is teaching me, how he is drawing me, how he is growing me and us. There's a warning embedded here. A warning not to be unequally yoked to another person, or to another God. And now with that warning embedded, it's time to look to this wise request that Solomon makes. But actually, before the request, let's deal with the offer. I've just told you that Solomon is worshiping in sin. Solomon is living in sin in Gibeon, and yet... The Lord met him there. Is there anyone here this morning struggling in sin? Is there anyone here this morning wondering if the Lord could love you in the midst of that struggle? Is there anyone wondering this morning if your sin is so great that Jesus could never forgive you? I want to be careful. With what I'm about to say, I'm not about to offer a license to go sin because we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are many of us who are in the fight, who are struggling with sin, and at times have given ourselves over to it completely. And we wonder in the midst of that struggle, could Jesus love me? Could Jesus forgive a sinner 
like me. If that is you this morning, I want to encourage you with this truth. The Lord meeting Solomon in Gibeon is a picture of grace. Meeting him in the midst of his sin. And there the Lord tells Solomon in verse 5, Ask what I shall give you. So is Solomon's response. This is the high point of his reign. As glorious from an outward perspective as Solomon's reign was, these verses are the pinnacle. In verse 6, Solomon praises the Lord for his steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in verse 7 and 8, Solomon, the king of Israel, makes himself small. He acknowledges his smallness and so asks for wisdom. Another way that it's translated is he asks for an understanding mind, translated elsewhere as a listening heart. Understand, Solomon is not saying, Lord, let me win trivia night. He's not saying, give me a bunch of facts and knowledge. He's saying, give me a listening heart that I might discern and I might rule wisely. It's a beautiful, wise request born out of a grasp of his own need. And so I ask you, what does that look like in your own life? What does it take to bring you to the point of recognizing your own need? I used to do my own taxes. There was a season of life when I could simply take that 1040 EZ form, write on a few numbers, sign my name, and be done. But life went on. I had a family. I had a business. I went into ministry, and it got a lot more complicated, and I have no business doing my own taxes anymore. I got to the point where where it got beyond my ability and I had to acknowledge my need and submit to the CPA. <laughs> On one level, that illustrates the realization we've all got to come to, that life gets beyond our ability. We've got to acknowledge our smallness before the Lord. But on the other hand, it illustrates a fallacy that we live under that there's a place where we can handle it and a place where we can't. The truth is we're always in need. True wisdom understands that I am always small. Solomon is a wildly mixed bag. We're going to see this in his life and in his writing, and yet Solomon is the one who defined wisdom for us in Proverbs 1, 7. Kids, listen up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That fear that he talks about is a holy awareness of the Lord our God and our place in Him. He is big. We are small. The fool is the one who thinks that he does not need the God of the universe. At least here, at the high point of Solomon's reign, he got to that awareness. He knew his smallness, and he made himself small before the Lord. This is where wisdom comes from. 
Understanding who we are in relation to God, Solomon made that declaration and his request pleased the Lord. And so the rest of chapter 3 and 4 and, well, the rest of his life shows us how that wisdom played out in Solomon's life. And the record is mixed. Read the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We see what I'll point out for you, a twofold purpose for wisdom and a twofold warning that comes with wisdom and wealth. First, the purpose. First purpose I'll put before you is is appropriate worship. Remember that qualifier I told you about in verse 3 when it said, only he worshiped at the high places? Solomon was was worshiping contrary to the word of God there at the beginning of this whole saga. But what happened? What was the first action when he asked the Lord for wisdom and the Lord granted that wisdom? Did you pick up on that? Solomon's first action his response to wisdom is seen in verse 15 and Solomon awoke and behold it was a dream and then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for the servants he listened to the Lord look there was no temple yet Solomon hadn't built it but there was a tabernacle and in that tabernacle was the altar the ark of God, and that's where Solomon went, to God's appointed place of worship. So how about us? How do we apply this lesson to us? The focus on place was appropriate then at that stage in redemptive history. At that point in redemptive history, the Lord, the Lord was safeguarding the purity of his worship and protecting the hearts of his people because he knew what would happen if they were out amongst the pagan world but John 4 tells us of a shift Jesus indicates that the shift moves away from place into the heart there in John chapter 4 Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well and he's drawing her heart out to him but what does she do she does what we do When we get challenged, she changed the conversation. She asked another question when Jesus started getting too close and said, Hey, Jesus, where should we worship? We Samaritans worship out in the mountains, the high places. You Jews say we worship in Jerusalem. Where is it? And Jesus' answer was telling. He was pointing to a transition in this whole discussion He said, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He's pointing to a time when purity of place would not be the focus, but purity of heart. We, sitting on this side of the cross, And on this side of Pentecost, where we are given the blessing of the indwelling Spirit of God, we look back and see that this call to appropriate worship doesn't point us merely to this sanctuary. We focus on place and the Lord Jesus. That is the call to appropriate worship, that He is our object 
not our desires, not our preferences, but the Lord Jesus. That's the vertical impact that we see here modeled in 1 Kings 3, the vertical impact and purpose of wisdom, but there's also a horizontal. Hang with me for a minute. Just governance. Later this afternoon, I want you to read the rest of chapter 3. I actually want you to read the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4. But in chapter 3, you're going to read the story of, of Solomon rendering judgment for the two prostitutes. It's a story that you probably know. There were two prostitutes. Each of them had babies. And one night, one of those babies died. And the prostitute who had the dead child switched the children. The woman woke up to the, the dead baby and knew that it was not hers. She brought the other woman before King Solomon to receive justice. Solomon listened to their story and ordered a sword so that he could divide the child, knowing the true mother would rather give up the child than see it die. That's how it played out. But we read the impact of that judgment in chapter 3, verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Solomon offered a wise declaration, and it brought glory to God because he governed justly. God gave, and he still gives wisdom that his appointed leaders might govern justly and bring him glory. To that point, don't miss the fact that these two women were prostitutes. Translated, they were sinners. And yet, Solomon fought for justice even for women like them, which tells us that we as sinners also are worthy of justice and for fighting for Justice for others. The example of just governance continues into chapter 4. When you read the first 19 verses of that chapter, you'll see the beautiful order and administrative wisdom of Solomon and his people thrived under that wisdom and God was glorified. It's a glorious picture. But as the writer continues on, you'll see, he seems to just gush about the wisdom and wealth of Solomon, and I want to propose to you that there's a subtle warning in all of that gushing, a twofold warning with wisdom and wealth. First of all, the reminder, Solomon is a mixed bag, but I want you to see in that a picture of ourselves, okay? The first warning here that comes with wisdom and wealth is the temptation towards self-indulgent luxury. This picture of Solomon's wealth, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable. Chapter 4, verse 26 says that Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. It's a picture of abusive excess. If we go back to Deuteronomy, remember, we're looking to Deuteronomy here. Deuteronomy 17, 16, one of the admonitions for the king was it said the king must not acquire many horses for himself. Now I understand 
the word many offers some leeway. It's not a definite number. But possibly, we could add some wisdom of our own and think about many and establish that 40,000 is somewhere north of the line. wealth was given for the glory of God. It was used for private excess. Psalm 24:1 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns it all. He owns the creation and he owns us. We're called to be stewards. The gifts that he entrusts to us, yet this picture feels indulgent and it ultimately leads Solomon and us away from the Lord. That's the first warning. Here's the second. The warning of self-serving reputation. I'll acknowledge, I'm reading a bit into this, but this description of Solomon's reputation seems to be a bit over the top in my personal opinion. Uh, We go to verse 31 of chapter 4. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and Haman, Calcol and Darda the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He goes on to describe him speaking of Uh, trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of the beasts, of the birds, the reptiles, and of the fishes. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. But notice what is not said there that we heard at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, they saw the wisdom of God. In chapter 4, they see the wisdom of Solomon. It all sounds a bit Jeffersonian to me. Descriptions of Thomas Jefferson regale the, the tales of, of his uh, wisdom, of, of the reach of his knowledge. John F. Kennedy was speaking to a group of Nobel laureates who had gathered one time at the White House, and he said, this is the greatest collection of talent and human knowledge that has ever gathered at the White House, except perhaps when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. sort of get that sense here. This is the problem with reputation. At some point, we begin to believe our own press. That's why Nick Saban calls it rat poison. Jefferson was famous for his knowledge and wisdom, but he was also famous for the Jefferson Bible. In the Jefferson Bible, he cut out every description of the supernatural and was left with what he considered to be the perfect moral code. Jefferson was so impressed with his own wisdom that he made a mockery of the word of God. Will Solomon go that far? Will we? The warnings are there. That is what that is what has happened in the liberal churches, they have abandoned the word of God in favor of their own intellect. But remember the high point of Solomon's reign. It was the point of his utter dependence. It was the place of his smallness. 
that description of wisdom is contrary to the ways of the world, but it is a greater and more gracious wisdom. It is actually a picture of the wisdom of God. Closing, I look to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This, this is wisdom. Beginning there, 1 Corinthians 1, 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom of God is seen most clearly in the elegant simplicity of the gospel. The story of the two prostitutes arguing over the baby is a story of a, a complicated problem, but Solomon found a simple, elegant solution to that complicated problem. Yet you and I, we, we have our own complication. It's called sin. And that sin separates us from God. Sin is imperfection, and the problem with imperfection is it is always imperfect. It cannot make itself anything more, and yet our holy and wise God has a simple, elegant solution to that separation. God the Son took on flesh. He took on humanity that he might live the perfect life that we could never attain and therefore in his sacrificial death he took on our sin and affected the great exchange removing our sin and giving us his righteousness and therefore reconciling us to God in him receive it all by faith, and faith alone, in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The wisdom, this wisdom, foolishness to the world, but to the needy, to the hurting, to those who have been made small, it is the word of life and the wisdom of God. Like Solomon, we're people divided. But our greatest wisdom is found in the emptying of self and the filling of Christ. Brothers and sisters of Christ Church, let us seek the wisdom of Christ in union with Christ for the glory of Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom is astounding. It is greater than anything that we could ever concoct. It is a story that is almost too wonderful 
be true, and yet it is. It is all true, and it is centered on Jesus Christ, our wisdom, our life, our Savior. Draw us ever closer into Him. And if there be anyone here this day who has not yet gotten to that point of making themselves small, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would you would draw them to their knees. In Jesus' name we pray.